continuing our, our summer sermon series on the, the life of David, and, and more specifically on King David's life with God, uh, this morning is Stephanie Homer, and I'll give her a brief introduction, even though most of you know her through uh, Lakewood Breakfast Club or other things, but Stephanie is an Ohioan, Ohio. she went to Kent State, and also the Duke University, uh, where she completed... <laughs> where she completed a PhD in cell biology. So rarefied error here. Um, she's so nice for a scientist, too. It's crazy. <laughs> Stephanie also loves uh, to horseback ride in the outdoors, and I think she's set to share a great story about some of her time outdoors. And currently, she's working for a graduate Christian fellowship over at Duke. Um, when, when I met Stephanie, uh, initially she said, I, I really loved um, doing research during my, my program, but w by the time I got done, I realized I love, I love researchers as much as I love the research. And so that, that's what she gets to do uh, with most of her days these days is, is work for InterVarsity and minister to graduate students uh, just down the road. So um, I'm going to invite Camille to come up and read our scripture passage from 1 Samuel 31 through 25. I wonder if Stephanie gave me this passage because it mentions an Egyptian, but... Um, all right, so this is regarding the Amalekite raid on Ziklag. Three days later, David and his soldiers reached Ziklag. The Amalekites had raided the arid southern plain of Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it down, taking the women and everyone in the city prisoner. Whether young or old, they hadn't killed anyone but carried them off and went on their way. When David and his soldiers got to the town and found it burned down, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters taken prisoner, David and the troops with him broke into tears and cried until they could cry no more. David's two wives had been captured as well, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow from Carmel. David was in deep trouble because the troops were talking about stoning him. Each of the soldiers was deeply distressed about their sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. David said to the priest, Abiathar, Amalekite's son, bring the priestly vest to me. So Abiathar brought it to David. Then David, said, then David asked the Lord, should I go after this raiding party, will I catch them? Yes, go after them, God answered. You will definitely catch them and will succeed in the rescue. So David set off with 600 men. They came to the Besser Raven, where some stayed behind. David and 400 men continued the pursuit, while 200 men stayed there, too exhausted to cross the Besser Raven. They found an Egyptian in the countryside and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate, and they gave him water to drink. They also gave him a piece of fig cake and two raisin cakes. 
he ate and regained his strength because he hadn't eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and nights. Then David asked him, Whose slave are you? Where do you come from? I'm an Egyptian servant boy, he said, and the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We had raided the arid southern plain belonging to the Chetherites, the territory belonging to Judah, and the southern plain of Caleb. We also burned Ziklag down. Can you guide me to this raiding party? David asked him. Make a pledge to me by God that you won't kill me or hand me over to my master, the boy said, and I will guide you to the raiding party. So the boy led David to them, and he found them scattered all over the countryside, eating, drinking, and celebrating over the large amount of plunder they had taken from Philistine and Judean territory. David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. He killed them all. No one escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David rescued everything that the Amalekites had taken, including his own two wives. Nothing was missing from the plunder or anything that they had taken, neither old nor young, son nor daughter. David brought everything back. David also captured all the sheep and cattle which were driven in front of the other livestock. The troops said, this is David's plunder. David reached the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow him and had stayed behind at the Basar Ravine. They came out to greet him and the troops who were with them. When David approached them, he asked how they were doing. But then all the evil and despicable individuals who had accompanied David said, we won't share any of the plunder we rescued with them because they didn't go with us. Each of them can take his wife and children and go, but that's it. Brothers, David said, don't act that way with the things the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the raiding party that had attacked us. How could anyone agree with you on this plan? The share of those who went into battle and the share of those who stayed with the supplies will be divided equally. So from that day forward, David made that a regulation and a law in Israel which remains in place even now. This is the word of the Lord for God's people. So I'm a little thankful for the warm temperature, because if I break a sweat today, you guys won't know if it's because of the temperature or from nerves. <laughs> You'll never know the difference. So Chris mentioned that I like the outdoors. Several years ago, I planned a hiking trip for some friends in Western North Carolina at Stone Mountain. At the beginning of the hiking trip, a few people were a little nervous about what would happen if some people couldn't keep up with the pace of the group. So they said, what should be our plan if some people start to fall behind? And I thought I was being pretty witty when I said, well, stick to the Pirate's Code. So this is straight from Pirates of the Caribbean, Disney. And the Pirate's Code is, anyone who falls behind is left behind. Not everyone thought it was funny at the time. I assumed, it's I assumed it was because they hadn't seen the Pirates of the Caribbean. 
Maybe they were a little nicer than me, or maybe they were actually a little worried. So we get out to Stone Mountain, and we start hiking up it. And it seems like the closer we get to the top, the steeper it gets. And as we get closer to the top, people start to fall behind. Do you guys want to guess who one of those people was? Yeah, it was me. So if you've been on a hike that's a little bit above your fitness level, you might remember what that feels like. Your calves start to burn. Your feet start to feel like lead weights at the end of your legs. Your heart starts to pound. And if you're me, you start sounding like Darth Vader when you breathe. <laughs> it's a little humiliating. In this scenario, it was totally reasonable that most of the group just went at their own pace. They waited for me at the top of the mountain, and when they got to the parking lot, they didn't take off because I wasn't there yet. It's totally reasonable. But one of the guys on the trip was unreasonably generous toward me and the other stragglers. Even though he could have gone a lot faster, he stayed at our pace. He didn't make us feel ashamed for being slower than the rest of the group. He didn't say anything about the pirate's code. Just really kind. And he was just present with us in a way that was really kind and generous. So in our passage today, we see two examples of unreasonable generosity toward people who fall behind. And the first example is that of the Egyptian slave. So the Egyptian slave had fallen behind in the wilderness just like I did. But unlike me, he didn't have that great guy to stay with him. He was left behind and he was abandoned. And it might not have been the first time that he was abandoned. We can imagine that's possible that he was sold into slavery by family or friends, people that should have loved him. Or he might have been captured in battle. Maybe he was left behind by people who couldn't protect him, even though they should have. Maybe they couldn't or they wouldn't. But either way, at this point, his, Egyptians, or his slave owners, the Amalekites, had decided he wasn't worth waiting for. He had fallen sick and he couldn't keep up with the group, and they left him behind. He was lost in the wilderness. He was as good as dead. His owners didn't think he was worth waiting for. But David and his men saw it differently. Reasonable generosity in this case might have been that David and his men just didn't kill him. He was a part of an enemy party. Maybe they would have thrown some food his way as they continued looking in the wilderness for their wives and their children that were missing. But David and his men responded with unreasonable generosity. They shared food and water. They comforted him. They waited until he felt better, and then they listened to hear his story. David and his men couldn't have had an abundance of supplies with them. They'd already been marching for three days, and they were political refugees living in enemy territory. Generosity in this case cost them something, but they gave from what they had. David and his men also couldn't have felt like they had unlimited time. Their women and children were moving further and further away from them. They were captives. They needed to go after them and, cap and catch up with the captors and rescue their wives and children. But generosity slows you down, and David and his men made time for that. The second story we see happens between the Israelites when they return to the Basor Raven. Ravine. <laughs> ravine. Let's go that. It's the Basor Ravine. <laughs> um, so let's back up to how David and his men ended up at the Basor Ravine. So David and his men are living in Philistine land. This is enemy territory, but they're living there as refugees from Saul. So Saul is the current king of Israel, and Saul wants to kill David. But Saul won't come after David if he's living in Philistine territory, because Philistines are enemies of Saul's kingdom. Now David and his men's wives and children have been kidnapped. 
by other enemies. And David and his men are heartbroken about this. It says that they cry until they can't cry anymore. Maybe some of us have been there, where we kind of come to a point of tear depletion. David and his men were there. So David has 600 men with him, and they start chasing after the captors of their wives and children. These terrible people that had burned their town to the ground, and their wives and children are nowhere in sight. But when David and his men come to the Besor Ravine, their enemies are still nowhere to be seen. They don't know where their wives and children are. And some of the men give up. They become so tired and exhausted that they can't go any further. The other 400 men continue on with David. And it totally makes sense that the 200 men were tired. They'd already been on the road for three days. So David and the 400 men keep going. They catch up with the Amalekites. They're able to face them in battle. And they get their wives and children back, plus a lot of loot. And then they come back to the Besor Ravine, where the 200 men had fallen behind. So when David and his men reach the 200 that had fallen behind, David's first response is to ask those 200 how they're doing. I just see so much caring in this. He might be concerned about their physical well-being, their mental state as they're worrying about their wives and children, their emotional state, or their spiritual state. But David asks, how are they doing? His men's response, on the other hand, is to say that they don't want to share any of their plunder. So even though David and his men both had an equally generous response to the Egyptian slave, they have a very different response to their Israelite brothers. How often are we ourselves less generous with those that are closest to us? Sometimes it's harder to be kind, to be generous with our actions or words towards a family member or housemate, people that we're comfortable with. And some of us find it harder, easier to have compassion for black lives that are in Africa than for black lives that are in America. So I want to propose that David's men actually do respond with reasonable generosity. David's men have fought the battle, they've faced the danger of warfare, and they've brought back all of the wives and children, and they're going to let the men have their wives and children back. This was a pretty customary practice. It shouldn't sound too foreign to us. We often believe that you should earn you should work for, for your reward. If you don't eat, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, this, is how, this is how we often think, and that's how they thought then. So the men had already been reasonably generous just by saving the men's wives and children from captivity. But David's response is unreasonably generous. And David's men seem to anticipate this response. David hasn't said a thing about the loot yet, and David's men are already jumping in to make sure that he's not going to give away any of their hard-earned stuff. But David responds to them like this. We'll bring up the next slide. All right, I'm going to start reading at the second paragraph. Oops. And I think we're, are we canceling each other out there? Okay, great. We're fighting over it. Okay. So David says, families don't do this sort of thing. Oh, no, my brothers, David said. You can't act this way with what God has given us. God kept us safe. He handed over the raiders who attacked us. Who would ever listen to this kind of talk? The share of the one who stays with the gear is the share of the one who fights. Equal shares. Share and share alike. And from that day on, David made this a rule in Israel. He started a new standard for generosity. So David shows incredible caring while maintaining the dignity of those who had fallen behind. David has the eyes to see the contribution of those 200 men. 
he says that those 200 men stayed with the gear. I have to wonder if those 200 men hadn't stayed with the gear, if, the, if they hadn't lightened the load of the 400 that kept going, if those 400 would have been able to go fast enough to catch up with their wives and children and to rescue them. In God's kingdom, everyone has something to contribute. David is in touch with this reality. I can't look at this story without thinking about Reality Ministries, one of our ministries right here in Durham. We're friends that have built, that with and without disabilities both come to the table and are shown that they have dignity and that they're loved and that they have something to contribute. So when we think about the response of David and his men, I think we can see four reasons that might motivate David's response to be different. The first one is that David remembers where he came from. So David had been a lowly shepherd boy before he was called to be king. The Bible is often sure to tell us that David was good looking, but we know that he was the youngest and the smallest. Samuel didn't see something in him immediately that told him that he was going to be the king. When I picture an image of David in my head, I picture a kind of Justin Bieber-like character. If there had been a boy band in ancient Israel, he would have been a pop icon. But we know that he's not the picture of a warrior or a heroic king. David knows that he has been called by God, and he remembers where God called him from. But David's men, they seem to forget where he called them from. We first see David's men in chapter 22. Wrong way. And this is how the Bible describes them. It says, everyone who was in trouble in debt or in desperate circumstances gathered around David and he became their leader or if we look at the message it says all who were down on their luck came around losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts so when I picture David and his men I kind of think of Robin Hood and his merry men but in this case it's David and his misfit men So these men had began to experience God's generosity in their life and success when David came into their lives and when they gathered around him in the wilderness. Secondly, David knows that his success is a gift from God. But David's men seem to forget how generous God has been with them. They seem to think that they've achieved success by their own merit. Their response reminds me of a social experiment based on a game of rigged monopoly. In rigged monopoly, people are given twice as much money. Random players in the game are given twice as much money, more than two dice to play with, and higher bonuses for pass and go. But within 15 minutes of playing the game, the privileged player starts to change their behavior. They begin acting meaner, they talk louder, they eat more of the pretzels. (laughs) More of the pretzels. In one case, a privileged player actually started to take credit and began explaining the strategy that they had used to cause them to win the game. Blindness to our own privilege happens so quickly, and forgetfulness of God's generosity also happens quickly. Third, David strengthens himself in the Lord. At the beginning of our reading, it told us this, that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He had called for his priest, or you might say his pastor, and he asked God for direction. So David is actively seeking God and seeking godly counsel. And finding his strength in the Lord gives David the strength to be generous. Finally, in times of weakness, 
David has deeply and personally experienced God's generosity, and especially in the wilderness, which the encounter with the Egyptian slave might have reminded him of, and especially in a times of abandonment by people. David wrote about feelings of abandonment many times in the Psalms, and some of us might be able to relate to that. Some of us might have felt abandoned by friends or family. We might feel literally abandoned or emotionally abandoned. And the abandonment might have been intentional through neglect or conflict, or unintentional through the natural rhythms of life, friends moving away, friends seeking new relationships, the passing on of a family member or a loved one. In Psalm 22, verse 1, David even expresses feeling abandoned by God when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David's actions are informed by a deep experience of God's generosity. The first song we sang this morning was Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is my shepherd, I won't be wanting. So an understanding of God's generosity motivated David to be unreasonably generous towards people who had fallen behind, such as the Egyptian slave and the 200 Israelites. As someone that's experienced incredible generosity in my own life, the stories we examine today have a lot of meaning to me. So as InterVarsity staff, a part of my job is to find prayer and financial partners for the ministry. So I have the unusual opportunity and privilege to talk to people about their money and to encourage them to be generous with it. This is hard for some new staff, and it's, it's not always easy for me. Sometimes I can avoid any feelings of shame that might come from asking people for money um, by reminding myself and reminding them that they're giving to a vision and a mission and a cause. They're not giving directly to me. But ultimately, I know that what they give will end up helping to cover my salary so I can be on campus. There's a friend of mine that once told me that if it's more blessed to give than to receive, then by offering people a chance to give by receiving from them, I'm actually blessing them. And that really blows my mind in a kind of upside-down kingdom sort of way. So one of my supporters is an alumni. Um, she gives on a monthly basis. And she started giving after she graduated from Duke, but before she even had a job lined up. It was really unbelievable to me. And after she got her first job, she increased her giving by 50% without me ever talking to her about it. I think that's really unreasonable generosity. I've also been unemployed for two significant periods after graduating. There's been some weird moments where people were generous with me and I wasn't sure if it was from obligation or freedom, and sometimes where it was unsure whether it was a loan or a gift. It would have been totally reasonable for friends or family to offer me a loan, and several of them did, and I really appreciate it. They could have also let me sleep on the couch for a while while I got back onto my feet. People also offered that, and a few of them I took them up on it. But some of my friends were really unreasonably generous with me. They took me to meals, they gave me gift cards for the grocery store or for gas. I can't really eat at Lily's Pizza without remembering the friend that would always save his leftovers for me, and I loved it. I still love Lily's Pizza. This was costly for some of my friends. A lot of them were still grad students or recent graduates. These people weren't making the big bucks, but they were really unreasonably generous with me. And I learned during those periods that ultimately the generosity that people were showing me was coming from God. God was working through them to show his unreasonable generosity to me. 
One of the most unreasonable moments of God's generosity involves a story about laundry detergent and a rice cooker. So I'm a little ashamed to admit I'd been taking laundry detergent from my roommates without ever asking them for it. So you might technically say I was stealing the laundry detergent. I knew that if I asked them for it, they would have said yes and they would have given it to me gladly. But I was too ashamed to admit that I wasn't sure if I could buy laundry detergent that month. At the same time, I had a kind of silly sounding longing for a rice cooker. So I've lived in Durham for nine years and I've lived a lot of those years alongside Asian students at Duke. And Asian students often have rice cookers, it's not uncommon. And I can't cook rice on the stove to save my life. It either ends up burnt or goopy or not cooked. It, it never ends out right. Rice cookers, they're lifesavers. But I knew at this time that it would be irresponsible to buy a rice cooker. I couldn't buy laundry detergent. How was I gonna buy a rice cooker? It's not really a necessity. So I just kind of gave that over to God. And was like, someday when I get on my feet again, I'll probably own a rice cooker. <laughs> well, not long after that, a friend showed up at my front door. She was moving out of state and she had a few things she didn't need anymore. Do you wanna guess what a couple of those things were? There was a big bottle of mostly unused laundry detergent and a brand new rice cooker. I use that rice cooker all the time, just yesterday. And I'm not suggesting that God is some kind of genie that grants our rice cooker wishes, but I felt very specifically loved at that time. And I knew that he was showing his generosity toward me with something so simple, but so meaningful for me. So ultimately, our story today points us towards God's unreasonable generosity toward us. At the beginning of our scripture reading, we saw a bunch of down-on-their-luck down men who were devastated. And out of their sense of loss, they became disappointed with God's servant. They decide that they're going to kill him because they don't realize that the servant is the very one God will use to mediate his grace, to show them his unreasonable generosity, and to bring restoration and a new kind of kingship. In our lives, God works through Jesus Christ to mediate his grace, to bring restoration, to heal all of the things that are broken, and to bring about his new kingdom. This passage challenges us to remember the many ways that God has shown us his grace and generosity, and the major way through Christ's work on the cross, where Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can know that he does not forsake us. He did this so that his generosity can pour into our lives and overflow into the lives of those around us. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your unreasonable generosity toward us. When we fall behind, you don't abandon us. You comfort and strengthen us. You heal and restore us. Because of you, we lack nothing. You forgive our sins of forgetfulness and blindness. You make all things new. Make us people who are unreasonably generous because of a deep experience of your generosity in our daily lives. Amen.